Amen. Thank you. Well, if, if you're new here, I think I failed to uh, introduce myself when I was up here a little while ago. My name is uh, Matt Ortiz. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I have not met you yet, uh, would you do me a favor and introduce yourself to me after, after the, the, the service? I would, I would love to meet you and, and get to know you. And uh, if you want to find out more about the church, as Brock said, you can fill out a card to uh, indicate that you'll be here tonight uh, to go to uh, coffee with uh, the pastors. Um, nobody signs up. We won't be here, but if one person signs up, we'll, we'll be here. So let us know one way um, or the other. Also, I'm excited that we have the K through 5th grade joining us today. Give them a hand, would you? I'm excited about that. I don't know if the parents are very excited about that or even if the kids are, but we'll see how it goes. It's an experiment. We think it's good to have families together uh, every, every now and then, and uh, I like the potential um, of it. It's something that we could possibly uh, do if it, if it goes well. Probably there'll be a little bit of a learning curve, but I think it's, I think it's good. Um, we have been working our way through the book of, of Joshua, and if you've been with us in this series for a while, uh, you've noticed that it's been both exciting and disturbing. Have you noticed that? Yes, exciting and disturbing. Uh, but one of the things that we see when we step back and look at the big picture and look at the overarching story is that there is what one particular author calls an optimistic joy that pervades the book. And what we see in Joshua is that God always, always keeps his promises. How many of you believe that this morning? A few of you. Awesome. How many of you forget that regularly? Raise your hand. Yeah, we, we all forget that God keeps his promises, and so God patiently and graciously reminds us and then reminds us again and then reminds us again and then reminds us again. So, context is God's promise to give his people the promised land, and you need to know that this is not just some real estate inheritance. Okay? It's more than that. The promised land is, is more than just a metaphor for, for heaven. The promised land represented life as it should be, uh, as we long for it to be. It represented a place of rest in the presence of, of God. And at this point in the book, God is now finally giving his people the promised land. And so he divvies up the land among the different tribes of Israel and he sets aside six cities known as the cities of refuge. Cities that people can flee to for safety, people that unintentionally killed someone. So here's the deal. God rules in the promised land. And so life must be protected. If someone in anger causes another person's death, then the closest relative functions as the blood avenger to seek justice. And the accused can flee to one of these cities of refuge so that the blood avenger doesn't take them out before the trial. Now, what in the world does that have to do with us today? Well, a lot, actually, and maybe in ways you might not think. Here's why. Every single one of us here 
and every single person out there and around the world, we all have a very real, deep need for refuge. We have a deep need for a place that we can run to in the time of true danger. I mean, we even saw this, like the kids know this, um, when, when, and you remember when you were growing up, the games that we used to play like hide and seek and tag and Red Rover and musical chairs and Duck Duck Goose. Remember, I mean, they all have a place of safety where, where you, your opponent can't get you, right? Well, most of us are older now, and the stakes are so much higher. And life in a broken world really is dangerous. All you got to do is watch the news or read the news online or just reflect on your own experiences, right? We can get seriously hurt. Things that happen that can stir up anger and violence. And so we know that sooner or later, we will need, absolutely need, a refuge. We will need a mighty fortress. We will need protection. Now, in light of that context, in light of our passage, I want to zero in on one particular topic throughout this, throughout this sermon. And I'm going to give the kids a hint as to what that topic is. What's that guy's name? That's exactly right. Anger. You guys got it. Anger. And I think it's so appropriate that Lewis Black did the voice for this character because Lewis Black is the angriest person on the planet. Now, anger is what makes refuge necessary. Now, of course, there is righteous anger, and that's the kind of anger a sinless God has. And sometimes, maybe, but probably not, maybe we have the slightest shred of righteous anger, but mostly it's sinful, unrighteous, selfish anger. And we totally justify it. We have this righteous indignation, and we hold on to it, and we justify it. And that's what I want to look at today, but I want to look at it um, through the lens of these cities of refuge, and I think we see three important um, lessons here. If you're taking notes, preparing for your time uh, at your crowded house this, this weekend, the first lesson is this, that our anger is deadly. It's absolutely deadly. Your anger is so powerful that it can kill. And I'm telling you, it kills in several different ways. First of all, it can kill physically. The difference between uh, murder and an accident is anger. Now, looking at our text, Joshua chapter 20, uh, verse 5, it says this, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly or um, literally without the intent to hurt and did not hate him in the past or did not hate him uh, before. So the issue is, was it done in anger? Anger can, we know, anger can kill physically, but also your anger can kill emotionally too. The book of Proverbs says the tongue has the power of life 
and death. That's pretty serious, right? And we read that and you think, but wait, I thought the book of Proverbs said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. What about that verse? Yeah, it's not in the Bible. You know why? Because it's not true. That's exactly right. The Bible says, the scriptures say, that words can hurt you even more. Proverbs 12, 18 says, reckless words pierce like a sword. And you know what? You don't get this till it happens to you, right? If it hasn't happened to you, I, I don't know, maybe you're the one shooting off at the mouth. I'm, I'm not sure, you know? Everybody else is a fragile little snowflake until it happens to you, right? This is how it works. We lack this self-awareness. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that this is true uh, for us as well. Anger can kill emotionally. And whew, the lack of humility is mind-boggling, and it's usually uh, the source of, of what causes us to uh, characterize um, people is just with all kinds of horrible, horrible words. And then your anger can kill spiritually. The Apostle Paul says this, uh, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil uh, a foothold. All right? That's serious right there. Do not give the devil a, a, a foothold. Now, maybe some of you don't believe in the, in, the, in the devil, but here's what I do know. Every single one of us has, has seen how unreconciled anger allows evil to enter into a relationship and destroy it. We've all seen that. Uh, you're probably thinking of a situation right now in the past or maybe right now in, in, in this time as, as, as you're listening to me talk. Or maybe you're sitting there listening to me and you're thinking, man, I know someone who really needs this message. I'm going to text them a sermon podcast because I just love them so much. They're so angry. Stop. This sermon is not for your spouse. It's not for your neighbor. It's not for your dad. It's for you. And it's for me. What do you mean it's for me? I don't have an anger problem. Yeah, you do. We all do. The only difference is that some people blow up and some people clam up. Right? Those who blow up know they're angry. Those who clam up um, don't. Or they won't admit it. But anger ferments, and bitterness will destroy you and those around you. And you're killing yourself spiritually. Some people wonder why uh, they are stuck in um, a life where they are regularly destroying their own life in just unhealthy ways. Um, or, or they wonder why the relationship with Jesus isn't more alive and, and soul-stirring. You see other people, like, what is it that they have? And, and I, I think it could be really helpful if we examine our own hearts 
and we ask ourselves, do I have any unresolved anger? It gives a foothold to evil in your life, and it spreads. So why is anger so powerful? Here's the thing about anger. Anger is a symptom of unfulfilled longings. We covet power. We cover, uh, covet approval. We covet control. We covet comfort. We live for one or mo- more of those, maybe not consciously, but definitely at the very least subconsciously, and it drives us. We have to have this. We have to have that in order for us to be happy or in order for us to be whole or in order for us to have peace. And so when someone or something gets in the way of us getting what we want, we get angry. And most of the time, you know what's under that anger? It's fear. Fear looks like anger so much of the time because we're afraid we're going to lose what we want, right? Now, this shows up even in the everyday mundane things. When someone cuts you off, they fly right past you on Center City. They cut you off and slam on the brakes and you almost rear-end them. Accident, airbags, right? So close. But you act like it really happened. And you lash out. And you call them a really bad name like stupid head. (laughs) Something like that. Maybe it's a little worse. They were disrespectful. And this disrespect robs me of power. But that's no big deal. I mean, everybody, it's not a big deal. Yes, it is, because it festers. Anger can't, we cannot afford for our anger to go unchecked. We cannot afford to allow our anger to be justified. It gives evil a foothold, and it spreads and it grows. Anger is powerful. It's powerful. Because it's plugged into deep longings, power, approval, comfort, control. Every single one of us looks to one or more of those things for meaning and purpose and wholeness and and, and peace. And when someone threatens it, we're filled with fear that gets expressed like anger. Right? So, that's the first thing we learned about anger from the cities of refuge. Your anger can be deadly. Now, here's the second thing we learn. Our anger will be avenged. There's justice at stake. Look what, again, go back to our our passage, Joshua chapter 20, verse 9. It says this, that, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee to the city of refuge so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation at trial. So, what happens? What happens if in the trial it's determined, it's determined that it was not an accident? And the accused did kill in anger and is guilty of murder. What, what happens then? Well, he's turned over to the avenger of blood, and the avenger of blood was authorized to carry out God's justice. Because in the promised land, God's justice rules. Lives had 
to be protected, and they are not protected without justice. When a life was taken, there would be justice for the victim, justice for the family, justice for the friends, justice for society. Now wait, maybe you might be thinking, yup, justice, that is the way it should be. People got to suffer the consequences of their crimes. There shouldn't be any murderers in heaven. Only good people like you and me should be in heaven. Well, there, there's some, some good stuff in there, but when you think only good people like you and me should get to heaven, that just really, really messes things up and is evidence that, that we don't understand the economy of God. If that's our perspective, then we've sealed our own death warrant. Listen, listen, I mean, listen to what Jesus says, okay? He takes this pretty seriously, and seriously, more seriously than I think any of us here do. Listen to what he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard uh, that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, or you stupid head, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's heavy, right? Jesus is saying, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, when it's properly understood, if we lash out at somebody with angry words, is symptomatic of a murderous heart. And in God's kingdom where justice reigns, we all are found guilty of murder and turned over to the avenger of blood. But wait, time out. I mean, Jesus doesn't expect us to be perfect. He doesn't tell us to be perfect, does he? Yep, just a few verses down. Look what he says. He says, what? Or the first two words? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let me ask you something. Do you think that you are going to enter God's kingdom because you are so awesome? Because you're good, or at least better than most people. If that's what you think, it just means that you don't get the central message of the Bible. You know what? Sometimes it is so easy for any of us to think that, you know what? God didn't have to stoop quite as low to save me as he had, as, you know, all those other people, those horrible, pathetic people. He didn't have to stoop so low to save me. We may not say that consciously, but on, I think on a subconscious le level, that kind of shows up in the way we treat other people. With an incredible lack of humility, and there is no excuse for that whatsoever. It is arrogant, self-righteous, holier-than-thou garbage, and we don't even understand our own heart. Now, you might not agree with that, but I'm telling you the scriptures and your heart agree that each of us is guilty of a murderous heart. And our anger will be avenged. Right, this, this is heavy, right? You see how powerful, 
this, this is? So what's the solution? And that's our last point. Our anger can be atoned. God gives us redemption. In other words, there is a way to be reconciled with God. Now, now check this out. I thought this was pretty cool. Webster says that the word atone comes from the combination of two words. And those two words are at one. Now, I just learned this past weekend that prior to the 17th century, the word one was pronounced own. Did anybody here know that? Like own, two, three, four. I didn't know that. And so the word atone, at own, means to be made at one. Reconciled with God, at peace with God. It means that there is a way to have the guilt of our anger removed. What is that way? Well, our passage gives us an incredibly clear clue. Go back to Joshua, starting in, in verse uh, Chapter 20, verse 6, he says, And he, the person accused of manslaughter, shall, be, shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. And then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. The only way the only way the person guilty of manslaughter could go to his home in the promised land is through the death of the high priest. Why does it hinge on the death of the high priest? Well, again, like we've been doing through this passage, put yourself in the sandals of the Israelite of the day, and you would be thinking something like this, like, well, my whole life, the high priest offered sacrifices on our behalf so that our sin could be atoned. And when the high priest dies, somehow through his death, it's like he takes all of our guilt to the grave with him, and it's like his death brings the dawning of a new age. Now, of course, the death of this high priest could not atone for sin. You know why? Because the high priest of the Old Testament, he was a sinner himself. And he needed to have atonement also. But here's what God is doing. Deliberately. God is deliberately pointing us to the great high priest. God was pointing us to Jesus Christ. The high priest in the Old Testament points to Christ. And the only way to be at one with God, the only way to get home is through the death of the great high priest. And unlike the other high priests, Jesus did not need to make sacrifices for his own sin because he was sinless. Jesus was able to live a perfect life of holiness. And unlike other high priests, Jesus did not need to, to offer sacrifices day after day. Jesus was able to sacrifice for our sin once and for all time. And unlike other high priests, Jesus did not offer the blood of sheep and goats. You know why? Because he offered up himself as our perfect sacrifice. On the cross, our great high priest took upon himself all of our guilt. 
He relieves us of the weight, the destruction of our guilt, specifically our guilt of having a murderous heart. And our murderous heart is exposed by our angry words and our angry thoughts. And then the avenger of blood, all of our sin was put onto the high priest, and then the avenger of of blood poured out holy justice on our great high priest. And he took all of your guilt and our guilt to the grave. And he rose again without sin so that we could be at one with God and be at home in the promised land. I mean, this is incredible, right? Are you blown away by that? So how do we get that? I mean, what is required? God doesn't give us a bunch of hoops to jump through, obstacle courses of one kind or another. You simply trust in Jesus. It's simple, but it is profound. You trust in Jesus as your great high priest. You trust in Jesus who took your guilt to the grave. And you trust in Jesus that he rose from the grave to set you free to live a whole new life. You simply trust in Jesus. Now, what happens if you do that? When you trust in Jesus as your high priest, what happens is renewal. You are renewed. First, your anger is atoned. Your anger is, is atoned by Jesus. You are at one with God, not because of anything that you did or could have done or could ever do. That's totally impossible. You are at one with God because what Jesus has done as your great high priest. And that means that now God sees you through the lens of Jesus. And do you know what that means when God sees you through the lens of Jesus? That God sees Jesus' death for sin as your death for sin. And God sees Jesus' perfect life to be your life. And that means that we are perfectly at one with God because of what Jesus has done as your your great high priest. And that means that now God sees you through the lens of Jesus. And that means that he loves you unconditionally because of Jesus. Can you improve on that? Anyone here? You can't even lose it. You did nothing to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. Because it all depends on God's grace. It all depends on Jesus. And the second thing um, is that God himself is your refuge. He himself is your mighty fortress. You can always run to God, and guess what? He will welcome you. It does not matter how badly you screwed up. When you turn back to God, he will not be standing there with his arms folded, tapping his toe with a scowl on his face. That's what we're kind of conditioned to think, right? 
in, in this world, that's kind of the way we expect it to go. You know, Jesus gives us a picture of God. He wants to show us what this looks like. He shows us in the parable, the prodigal son. If you're familiar with this story, you know that uh, when the prodigal son is finally coming home, the father of the prodigal son gathers up his robes, he jumps off the porch, and he runs to go greet his son, to welcome his son. And when he gets there, he throws his arms around his boy, and, and the original language, a more direct translation, well, it says, we read, that his father kisses his son, but actually it says he kisses and kisses and kisses and kisses his son. He is just so happy that he has returned. And then God throws a party for you because he wants to celebrate your return because he delights in you and he loves you. He cherishes you. How is that even possible? Doesn't God know the stuff that I've done? God looks at you through the lens of Jesus. You know, I, I did a memorial service yesterday in morning at the beach. And, and um, you know, memorial services, times like those, they have a way of making us face the reality that one day our time is going to come to. And when it does, I want you to know this. The eternal, almighty God himself is your home. You don't need any other, ultimately, you don't need any other refuge because God, your Father, is your refuge. Here's the last part of this renewal. Your anger will be tamed now, this does not happen overnight. It never completely happens in this life. But what you'll realize is that you're not getting as angry as you used to. In fact, more and more, you are finding yourself forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. And, and your anger begins to fade. And why does that happen? Because the deep longings of your soul more and more are being satisfied as you experience Jesus' presence through his Holy Spirit. As, as you know that he is with you, as you know that he is for you, and that he delights in you. So, Control, power, approval, comfort. If you long for control more and more, you'll be satisfied that the one who is in control loves you so much that he died for you and he promises, he promises to work all things together ultimately for your good. If you long for power more and more, you'll be satisfied that the greatest power in the world was on display in the weakness of Christ crucified. And when you get that, it fills your heart with a loyalty to follow him in the way of the cross. If you long for approval, 
more and more you will be satisfied by the Father's approval. And when you hear him say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, I am pleased with you. I delight in you. I want you to hear that this morning. And if you long for comfort more and more, we will be satisfied that the death of our great high priest means that one day you will be home where there is infinite joy and pleasure in his presence. And then, and then we'll be able to endure being deprived in this life because we know that we're not going to miss out on anything. So we don't have a death grip on comfort or what makes us comfortable anymore. See, I say this over and over again. God, renewal is so critical. It's for God, our good and God's glory. Because of Jesus, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you remain as you are. And he takes that very seriously for your good, for your joy, for his glory. We have a deep long, we all have a deep longing for refuge. A place where we can run in times of, of trouble and danger and violence and, and uncertainty and brokenness everywhere. And the good news is this. It's through the death of your great high priest, Jesus Christ, God himself, has become your refuge. I'm asking you this morning, do you know God as your refuge? When things fall apart in your life, when, when your health tanks, or, or when you find yourself stressed out, or you find yourself anger stirring up in your heart, what do you turn to? Do you turn to your refuge? Our, our anger gives us a pretty good hint whether or not we turn to God to be our refuge or not. And I'm telling you, our anger will rip you off and hurt you. Instead, Jesus offers you peace. Turn to him. Trust him. He is your refuge. The other things that you turn to for, for refuge, they will crush you and people around you. If you have not trusted Jesus as your great high priest yet, I plead with you this morning. Do that today because every single one of us here needs to find refuge in God. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would not be distracted by anything going on that we just let the distractions happen and that we would focus right here, right now, and we ask that your Holy Spirit um, would give us understanding. In this, in this moment, right here and right now, we pray that you would give us perspective, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to respond to who you are. 
God, show us how we turn to other things for refuge. Things that destroy our soul, destroy our relationships. God, would you show us how we are doing that? As, as a good physician would, give us a, a diagnosis so that we know that something needs to be done. Something needs to be changed. And that we can see the solution and experience relief in Christ who is the only solution. God, we pray that you forgive us for not turning to you as a refuge. And that you would change our hearts to find security, our security in you, our comfort in you, our approval in you. God, I pray for our church. God, I pray for all of those going through brokenness right now of one kind or another. Whether they're living a life, whether we are living a life of destruction or, or there are strained uh, relationships or there's bitterness or, or resentment or self-righteousness, whatever it is. God, I, I pray that, that we would turn to you for atonement and experience uh, relief because of the cross and a loyalty to our King Jesus who gave his life for us. Make that more real to us this morning so that we would become more like Christ. God, I pray if there's anybody here that has not yet put their faith and trust in you, that, that you would give them faith this morning. That you would give them courage this morning to follow you. Enable them to trust you. And God, I pray that you would give us all of the humility that, that we need to live the way of the cross. We pray these things in your name.